0: Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past.
2: I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we roll the dice and see what comes up in this episode, we've got some stuff. Eh? Eh? That's right. (laughs) We
1: have two patrons to shout out. First, we have Erica and then Don leveled up from total dirtbag to absolute dirtbag. So thank you, Erica and Don. And and listeners, if you want to support us and support the show at any level, we have a number of tiers at which you can provide a monthly donation to The Dirt. And all of that goes directly into the stuff we do for the show. So if you want to do that, you can over at patreon.com slash The Dirt Podcast. And we're just really always blown away and grateful that people want to give us their dollars for this thing that we do, that we love to do. So thank you. Thanks everybody.
2: And thanks also to all of you who made this spooktober our biggest yet. Um, And it was so great to hear from some of you. The most spook. Yeah. Um, It was so great to hear from some of you throughout the month. Like I know we're like growing and that's exciting, but it's still like blows my mind that i can say in an episode like if you know about this please reach out hit us up but, and then people did yeah. <laughs> and so um yeah as something of it's <laughs> I, we're not just yelling this into space i know it feels like it, i'm just yelling it's into the voice yeah um but um so as something of a coda to halloween tide uh mm-hmm. let's share two of these letters and so which are not scary these aren't scary letters. So, the, no. <laughs> the first one is from listener Aisha, who um, wrote in about our um, Haunted Burial Grounds episode, which people seem to really love. People seem I to like it. I, I mean, I
1: told you in the episode that you did a really great job.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah. But it's, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, Aisha says, Hey. Hey. Hello. <laughs> Um, I'm new to your podcast and I just listened to episode 110. They built it on a haunted burial ground and it reminded me of something. I'm binge watching true blood these days. And what you said about IBG in relation to colonialism and post-colonialism echoed with what happens to Terry Belafleur in season five. Um, she goes on to tell me what happened because I don't remember. Um, I think I stopped at like season three. Terry Belafleur was in the Marines, suffers PTSD. (laughs) I didn't. Uh, So Terry was in the Marines. um, He suffers from PTSD. And it has recently been revealed that during his time in Iraq, um, him and his buddies got high and paranoid. So they ended up murdering an entire town of innocent civilians on the 4th of July, um, which... Aisha says, seems like a significant date in a colonial or post-colonial context. Astute, Aisha. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) But one of the civilians, a mother, curses the Marines responsible, and then they all get haunted by a fire demon. I do remember this Aisha says I still don't know how that storyline ends but what you guys said about white colonial power trying to justify itself by making the other the colonized malevolent and evil resonated true blood so far has not made the marine seem victimized where I've stopped um Aisha wrote back <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah you're like hey like, this is what happens excellent <laughs> follow-up we I I appreciate that <laughs> yeah
2: yeah it was really great because I was like remember what happened <laughs> and I don't want to have to watch it again um so no spoilers but um when Aisha mentioned this so sort of like I watched True Blood in a very different like I was a very different person <laughs> with a different set of like knowledge the like when I, I, I saw today. it. Um and so I didn't think a whole lot about it th- I mean I f- I f- was just like Whoa. but I didn't um have anything to kind of anchor that but uh with Aisha's email I was like that sounds like an Ifrit, and um Ifrit are a kind of class of Jin, semi spiritual, semi being thing. The idea is that they're made of smokeless fire. That's like a um, fire. like a really beautiful like way to describe them. Djinn are part of the folklore and the mythology of. Like originally the Arabian Peninsula But it sort of reaches out in other places Mm -hmm. And it predates Islam They're mentioned in the Quran a couple times But like but really there's something like Older and deeper and like part Of like cultural traditions out Of which like the the Like environment within which Islam was formed not Mm -hmm. that they Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. Influenced but they were there before And so like when Like Muhammad like Received like the revelation and like started the religion he would have that known was all about part that's all part of world the world okay so yeah so but the if the free is is like a is the fiery one okay um so there's there are like if there are ghouls that, so the word ghoul yeah is an arabic word and that's a type of jinn and so the jinn actually are nothing like the genie in aladdin i wasn't um, gonna say anything no, I, I'm, just, I know I'm just saying like it's something and so but it is something that um, white people love, love a good gin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and also I'm saying all of this as somebody who has like done research, but like doesn't know uh, because it but you're, also, you're external to that. To the yeah, culture, because but. also like it's like external to the culture, but also external to sort of the like Bodies of literature, mm, mm-hmm. because it's something that like factors into elements of like spiritualism mm-hmm. and like mysticism, and so it's all it's all something that people who are external to all of that love thinking about because it's something that's sort of like scary and exotic. And yeah. the word majnun in Arabic means is crazy, and it means that you're possessed by a jinn. Um, like because like jinn is like the root, right? And so j-n-n jinn majnun is like because we, we talked about this like with chris Donley, where you have like the infixes and the suffixes mm-hmm. and stuff oh, yeah, you can put interface. all those bits around the yeah, let, yeah. the root letters and it makes other concepts um and so, and so that's something that that's how he comes up too. there yeah 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 um so but if you want to like learn about if you want to learn about jen and i like Uh, like, a fun context. I really, no, I, like, I really, really recommend the novel um, Aleph the Unseen. Okay. And it's about a, like, hacker guy who um, ends up getting, like, wrapped up in the unseen world of the djinn. So, thank you, um, Aisha, for, like, bringing this to our attention, because that's, that's, like, exactly the sort of thing that, like, fits in with, like, what I was asking about like, what, because, like, what other stuff is there? Like, these things that you could be, like, that's exotic. That's weird. That's scary. And there's, oh, oh my gosh. I should have like scripted this so I wouldn't go. There is a show. There's a Netflix show that is, um, I think it's an Indian production company, but it's like a net, it's, but it's on Netflix and mm-hmm. it's called Jin and. Um, spelled DJIN? I think it's spelled with a D. Like, okay. But like, it's So not, people can yeah, find it. I, but pretty sure it was written by like a, a white Englishman. Ah, okay, um, and so there's so it's it's supposed to be like a horror show. There's a lot happening in it that I was just like, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> um, Thumbs but there's down. also there's also a movie that is um there's a movie about a a gin that's like possessed an apartment building in um the Emirates, and it was like the first like Emirati horror film. The whole and it, building, well, like the a specific is? apartment. Oh, okay. But, like, within the building, but in, like, a high rise. And so, like, it's something that has come up. And so, yeah. Thank you, Aisha. Yes, All thank I you to for, say, like, for this your is insight. Great.
1: And saying this so we don't have to go watch True Blood again. Never again. <laughs> and then we have a second email from Glenn, who responded to, uh, <laughs> to our plea for help uh, dealing with Malagasy. And so Glenn writes, hello from the district.
2: Hello. Hello, neighbor.
1: In your recent ordeal podcast, you discuss some aspects of the reign of Queen Ranavalona I of Madagascar, or Imerina, as the kingdom was called. It is a great spooktober topic, Amber, take, take a bow there. Thank you. <laughs> Since she is known to have had a particularly bloody reign, replete with poison ordeals, military conquest, and conscripted labor. One ghastly piece of lore is that she threw unrepentant Christian converts from a cliff below her palace, the Rova, in the capital city. This cliff is still... Co- I don't... I shouldn't laugh at that. This cliff is still called Ampamaremana, the tumbling downhill to this day. You mentioned that you'd like to know the real pronunciation for certain Malagasy words. My family is from Madagascar, so I made the attached video, Glenn, you shouldn't have, but thank you, to demonstrate how these words are pronounced. It is definitely understandable that you find it difficult to pronounce Malagasy. I have trouble myself. Thank you, Glenn. Very kind of you. But there are a couple rules that can help. One it is largely phonetic. Once you know the sound a letter represents, it's pretty regular. And two, there's a high frequency of phantom vowels, spooked over vowels, where the vowel is barely aspirated, if at all, which is bound to trip you up, but at least it'll be a known unknown. I'd like to end this email by encouraging you to look more into the archaeology of Madagascar. Potential podcast? Oh, Glenn. Glenn, guess what? (laughs) Surprise, Glenn. Yeah. Since since it is such a <laughs> unique place and is little known in the Anglophone world. A brief taste of what is out there. An underwater cave with preserved prehistoric animals. Think giant lemurs. When do I not? Rock art with said giant lemurs. The reconstructed ancient Imarina Palace at Ambohimanga, which is a UNESCO World Heritage site. And the famous pirate graveyards on the Ile Saint-Marie. I hope you find this helpful or at least interesting.
2: Both. Keep up the great podcasting. Thank you, Glenn. Oh, Glenn! Keep up the great emailing. Too, this yeah. is that was amazing. That was so great. Um, to, what a lovely to get thing that. to have done. Yeah, to and um, great news for Glenn and everyone. When I was preparing that Spooktober episode, I put Madagascar on the list of like Upcoming. episodes to do soonish. Yeah, on deck. So, um, yeah, coming soon. <laughs> spring, spring, twenty twenty one too. Your ears. TBD, but soon. Yeah. So we love hearing from you listeners with your insights, your questions, and your very kind words. Um, Oh, my goodness. Everyone is so kind. So thank you to everyone who has written in and listeners. Um, If you'd like to do so as well, we we do read them. We usually write back. Anna writes back. I say, oh, so nice. And then forget to write back. So... I, we
1: talk about the emails though, and I we do. Yeah. I think I, I try I to speak for them both. To, to Anna. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's just an amanuensis over here. $20 worth. Um,
2: so, yeah, seriously. Um, so if you have anything, if you have any questions or comments or like tips, um, or you want to say hi, uh, please do that at Podcast yeah. at gmail.com. Yeah. So. A lot of up top business. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. that was fun.
1: I told my mom about these emails and she was delighted.
2: Ah, MomCast. MomCast.
1: So let's get down to business. Today we're talking about gambling, both in terms of the social practice of gambling and the material culture associated with games and betting. So let's jump right in by consulting the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Anthropology in which the wonderfully named Anthony Pickles writes... Quote, gambling is not a universal human activity. Betting is restricted to a subsection of any given population, and there are some areas of the world, most notably the Pacific Islands and Inuit communities, where gambling was once unknown. Many intentional communities, religious orders, and nation-states ban gambling or discourage it, and most states impose variously effective regulations and prescriptions on the legitimate forms of gambling, the contexts where it is permitted, who may play, the odds that may be offered, and the proportion of revenue to be appropriated by states, independent bodies, and charities. The dominant discussions in the study of gambling are, therefore, who gambles and on what – why they gamble, and why some people—ethnic and or cultural groups, genders, income brackets, etc.— gamble more frequently and or with higher stakes. Ancillary debates center on the relationship between games and gambling, the perceived causes of wins and losses, the correlation of gambling to other activities perceived as risky, and the role of gambling in redistributing valuables within and across societies. Anthropology has played a key role in moving beyond a problem-oriented approach to gambling by virtue of its attention to the context and symbolism of gambling within cultures. Oftentimes, the eth- I read that as ethography and then mid-word my brain went, is that a word? It isn't. Oftentimes, the ethnography itself challenges broadly held assumptions, such as the idea that gambling addiction is to be understood as an individual failing, and the notion that humans calculate risk like not be- <laughs> like not very <laughs> proficient economists. <laughs> Ouch! Has the anthropology of the global <laughs> the anthropology of the global North has matured, and the gambling industry has become more corporate than mob run? There is now a growing body of literature that tackles gambling at home ethnographically. These are just specifically referring to the games of Uno that I play here. With wagers? No, just with the consequence of I don't care when I play games. Ugh. I know. Ugh. And so there are some real consequences if I don't play good. Ugh. <laughs> I get yelled at. These these have generated excellent ethnographic insight into the mutual construction of gamblers as addicted or compulsive. So we'll have the rest of this entry in the show notes, and we recommend you check it out for a review of all the literature on the subject. So long story short, there is... So much we can tackle as anthropologists when it comes to gambling. And as we'll see in our specific examples later, it makes for a unique lens for exploring how societies construct good and bad behavior, how they define and view winners and losers
2: and how individuals interact with the economy and the state. Anna, Heidi just twitched her little perfect paw behind you and my heart exploded.
1: Oh, hi baby. I didn't know. I didn't
2: know she was up there. She just like, that little dream or something. Oh. Aww. oh Hello. Well, I'm glad you get to look at her while
1: we record. She is very asleep. I love her so much. Feel away if you want to
2: sponsor a podcast. oh Feel away. It calms cats down. And she's going to be really ready when the outside cat comes back. Oh, her sick th- like-
1: boyfriend.
2: <laughs> yeah. He's a chunky boy. <laughs> she's got like, ah, oh, she likes the beef cakes.
1: <laughs> she does. Like- he's he's Big hunky boy. (laughs) He comes to the door and just goes,
2: ah. (laughs) She (laughs) pokes her little (laughs) nose. She pokes
1: her little nose at like who's that?
2: Okay, you can get back to the work of (laughs) Dr. Anthony Pickles. Pickles. (laughs) Uh, Tony Pickles. (laughs) I had to like make sure that was not the name of the protagonist of it was Tommy Pickles. Tommy Pickles. Oh yeah.
1: I don't know, Tommy. (laughs) <laughs> so. oh man reptar oh god <sighs> something else besides the oeuvre of classic geek suppo that we have to address up top is that it's not a universal human trait gambling it's not like marriage or mythology or trade or technology not everybody as in not every human group has some kind of gambling going on Dr. Pickles discusses this in an article for, I'm so sorry I'm
2: like uh, kind of cute. I, I like looked him up because I because I, I think I also was like, is this the guy from Rats? <laughs> like, How would like, you tell
1: th- if he was 2 I'm, dimensional? I'm, I'm, and <laughs>
2: I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, still no, in a diaper.
1: I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So, Doctor Pickles, uh, Doctor, I'm so sorry, Doctor Pickles, if you ever listen, oh, God, we're sorry. Please don't. <laughs> In an article for The Conversation titled, There's No Such Thing as a Natural Born Gambler, guess where this is going? Quote, in truth, huge swaths of the planet just didn't gamble. No cards, no dice, not even a coin flip. And we're not talking about a thousand years ago, either. In some areas, it's just 50 years since gambling arrived. We can say with confidence that 150 years ago, betting on contests was absent from the indigenous peoples of most of South America, almost all of Australia, most of the Pacific islands, including the vast islands comprising New Guinea and New Zealand, most Inuit and Siberian peoples, and a great many peoples of Southern Africa. My own fieldwork in Highland Papua New Guinea showed the introduction of gambling occurred in the 1950s. In other words, within living memory. Yeah. Whoa. I'm really, um, boy, am I driving the struggle bus today. I just,
2: I, I, it's it's t- So listeners in the future. It is the Thursday after the election day. In, Maybe in you have United a president, States. future people. <laughs> like, what's that like?
1: So, yeah, uh, just for some context, this is where our heads are at uh, today. Living memory. My parents. Great. If whole populations don't or didn't gamble, well, it can't very well be a universal human trait. So why didn't they? And then he goes on to bust some myths and then continues to say. If it wasn't isolation and it wasn't lack of risk or lack of imagination, why have so many of us gambled so much while many others who didn't at all have now taken it up so quickly? Simple. We have money and a stratified society with a lot of economic inequality, and they didn't. Money may seem a self-evident thing, but it is surprisingly hard to make a hard and fast distinction between what we all know to be money and things like shell currencies. Like money itself, its definition can easily slip through our fingers what people who have adopted money tell anthropologists however is that what matters is that money has more uses is more portable more easily hidden and easier to spend oh do you know about the uh, we've talked about this the giant stone yes. currency yes just- <laughs> we'll post that on on social media on our instagram because i want to get the facts right but man that would be difficult to hide in your pocket many Was people this on, on yap the island of yap yeah Uh, And it's yeah, these giant like dolmens, these stone like monoliths that are the currency. And it is great. Many people in those societies that were new to money took up gambling as a way to access or direct this slippery new kind of wealth. Inequality is another good indicator for gambling, both statistically and on the ground. Where I did my fieldwork, gambling arrived with the return of the first migrant laborers, young men who, along with a knowledge of gambling, brought back what seemed like huge wealth and who had the potential to upend traditional hierarchies. So that's, that's kind of a very regional look at um, this trend but specifically within where he did his field work so to zoom out and look at gambling on a global scale let's turn to the other primary writer we found on the subject and by we i mean amber thanks bud
2: Aww. uh per binde Is that i forgot to i forgot to bother my swedish coworker to be like how do i say this swedish name <laughs> let's go with
1: per Binda who's been researching gambling for the past 20 years. In his article, Gambling Across Cultures, colon, Mapping Worldwide Occurrence and Learning from Ethnographic Comparison, uh, he does what the title says. He highlights several factors that, it's a good title, uh, that influence whether gambling might be seen in a society, which include, one, presence of commercial money, Two, societal complexity. The more complex the society, the higher the likelihood of there being games of chance, which ties into the next one, which is the type of social and economic system. If more money means more power and upward social mobility, then gambling is a way to increase economic and social capital. Number four, uncertainty. Societies with increased environmental, political, or other forms of insecurity mm, are more likely to see that uncertainty reflected back at them in gambling. Penultimately. <laughs> Religious or belief systems, saying, quote, gambling and religion are two spheres of beliefs and activities that seldom have an indifferent relationship. Usually, there is either a state of concord or of conflict. Many indigenous religions, as well as some popular and local interpretations of world religions, coexist in harmony with gambling. Oh, yeah, they have that coexist bumper sticker. <laughs> Religious rituals involve gambling. Myths tell about gambling gods. Ooh, put a pin in that. Gambling is invested with religious and magical significances, and so on. Gambling and religion go well together because there is a common preoccupation with the unknown, mystery, fate, destiny, despair, and happiness, receiving something valuable from higher powers and the hope for a transformed and better life. Monotheistic world religions, however, claim a monopoly in such matters and tend to criticize gambling. Several authors have suggested that religious denunciation of gambling is in part due to a conception that gambling competes with religion. Can't pray if you're gambling. And then, finally, ultimately, proximity to other societies with gambling, which could lead to cultural diffusion. Yeah, you learn it from the neighbors. So now that we've tackled the fundamentals of the anthropology of gambling, you're all experts now, congratulations, let's spend the rest of our time
2: together globe hopping. Amber, take me away. So I didn't realize when I first started working on this episode um, that this was going to happen. But this week we get to talk about a a seminal work of anthropology. Germinal. Um, So welcome to our graduate seminar, The Dirt 601, um, in which we're reading Clifford Geertz. 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 I don't remember. I actually have had to read this. I just mumbled his name every time. So, Anna, Mm. did you ever have to read Deep Play, Notes on the Balinese Cockfight? Are there bagels at this graduate seminar? Only if you bring them.
1: Uh,
2: No. I didn't. You didn't? I didn't. Okay. That's fine. I didn't read it. Um, I... I remembered the context of like why I had to read it and just like, ah, silly, (laughs) silly, silly class. So, um, all right, before we get into the essay itself, let's pause to contextualize its author. It seems like,
1: I don't know if, if I'm about to be proven wrong, but I did a quick little search on who this guy was just to kind of prep, but, and he seems kind
2: of cool. Is he cool? I can't, like, I think so. I'm so untrusting of. I cannot, I know. I cannot believe that he is, given that he was like a man who got tenure in the field of anthropology. (laughs) Like, it's just like. Is is this the one? The one. There are a lot of risk factors there. Yeah. It's just as I was reading, I was like, huh. No, but his work is uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. let's learn. Yes. So Clifford Geertz was a cultural anthropologist who is credited with popularizing the use of what's called thick description. <laughs> not not thick like Heidi's boyfriend cat.
1: <laughs> thick. That's thick with two syllables. <laughs>
2: So the idea of the thick description comes from the philosopher Gilbert Ryle, who explained that when someone describes the actions of another person or group, they can do it in one of two ways. If they're using thin description, they're just providing a superficial description of people's actions. If you're the third party to which this is being relayed, you're just like, why are these people doing this? This makes no sense. They're a bunch of weirdos. Um, However, if the person telling you, Is using thick description. They're describing it, describing not just the actions the group is taking or the words that they're saying. They're also providing the context given by the people doing those actions, who are called the actors. Right. So it's a thin layer versus a thick layer. If you're thinking about sort of like icing a cake, but now let's stick with uh, schmear
1: on bagels. Since we already schmear on
2: bagels, yes. Um, I like a thick bagel description with blocks. Um, So if you're so if you're Also, Anna. also a
1: philosopher i'm so
2: sorry <laughs> the philosopher john I'll oh wow sorry i yelled at you <laughs> i thought you like you were my dog <laughs> i am being naughty uh stop scooting <laughs> so if you're provided the context that's interpreted by the actors so you aren't hearing what the anthropologist thinks they're doing. You're hearing the anthropologist tell you what they told the anthropologist they're doing. They're saying, oh, we do this for X reasons, or it's significant to me in such and such ways. Uh, it's possible for you as that third party to be like, oh, I get it. Like your culture is different from mine. But with the context you're providing me, I understand how this makes sense to you and how it's it's natural for you. Um, and so that additional context is helpful for For future researchers, too, because it's more data that can be used in considering future questions. So it's it's more data like it's if they if they recorded it correctly, (laughs) it's sort of like what they're conveying can be used as data as if you were there talking to them, too. Um, So the anthropologist isn't just recording what they're seeing and how they're interpreting it. They're recording what everyone else in the situation is saying and explaining and expressing. So. Gilbert Ryle comes up with thick description as a concept in 1949, which is like sort of wild to think that within like our grandparents lifetime, certainly like our grandparents could have been the ones being like, yeah, duh. like coming up with it like that. It's like that's new. It's it's new that you would you would t- ask people why they do things and listen like that's amazing. Um <laughs> So uh, Clifford Geertz adopted it and like completely rocked the anthropological world with it. Like who knew? Asking people what's up and why they do stuff. Amazing. Uh, and, uh, you know, in one
1: direction. Awesome. Great. Super glad he came up with it. Kind of sad that it was
2: so late. But but it's also like it's a line between like people talking about like the curious natives. Right. And and like actually like. I know, but doing 1949 is just like, oh. I know it's, a, well, it didn't come to anthropology in 49. <laughs> it oh. came in like the fifties. Yeah, so right. um, Geertz also did tons of other stuff in the realm of anthropological theory and ethnographic practice. Uh, but for today, we're just going to take a peek at his most famous book, The Interpretation of Cultures, which was published in 1973. And the most famous essay of that book is Deep Play, Notes on the Balinese Cockfight." It's linked to in the show notes, so you can read it in full. But something that helps out Geertz's cause is is the fact that he's a really great writer. Um, So I'm going to read a bit from it to you. Now, a few special occasions aside, cockfights are illegal in Bali under the Republic. As for not altogether unrelated reasons, they were under the Dutch. Largely as a result of the pretensions to Puritanism, radical nationalism, seems tends to bring with it. The elite, which is itself not so very Puritan, worries about the poor, ignorant peasant gambling all his money away, about what foreigners will think, about the waste of time better devoted to building up the country. It sees cockfighting as primitive, backward, unprogressive, and generally unbecoming an ambitious nation. And as these other embarrassments, opium smoking, begging, or uncovered breasts, it seeks, rather unsystematically, to put a stop to it. As a result, the fights are usually held in a secluded corner of the village in semi-secrecy, a fact which tends to slow the action a little, not very much, but the Balinese do not care to have it slowed at all. In this case, however, perhaps because they were raising money for a school that the government was unable to give them, perhaps because raids had been few recently, perhaps, as I gathered from subsequent discussion, there was a notion that the necessary bribes had been paid, they thought they could take a chance on the central square and draw a larger and more enthusiastic crowd without attracting the attention of the law. They were wrong in the midst of the third match with hundreds of people including still transparent myself and my wife fused into a single body around the ring a superorganism in the literal sense a truck full of policemen armed with machine guns roared up amid great screeching cries of polici polici from the crowd the, from the crowd the policemen jumped out and springing into the center of the ring began to swing their guns around like gangsters in a motion picture though not going so far as to actually fire them the superorganism came instantly apart as its components scattered in all directions people raced down the road disappeared headfirst over walls scrambled under platforms folded themselves behind wicker screens scuttled up coconut trees cocks armed with steel spurs sharp enough to cut off a finger or run a hole through a foot were ri- running wildly around oh, no. everything was dust and panic on the established anthropological principle when in rome my wife and i decided only slightly less instantaneously instantaneously than everyone else that the thing to do was to run too we ran down the main village street northward away from where we were living for we were on that side of the ring around half about halfway down another fugitive duck suddenly into a compound his own it turned out and we seeing nothing ahead of us but rice fields open country and a very high volcano Followed him. As the three of us came tumbling into the courtyard, his wife, who had apparently been through this sort of thing before, whipped out a table, a tablecloth, three chairs, and three cups of tea. And we all, without any explicit communication whatsoever, sat down, commenced to sip tea, and sought to compose ourselves. That's so... Oh, wow. I love that. Isn't that great? Uh. And so, so... After describing this experience from which I read the above excerpt, Geertz explores the role of the cockfight and the relationship between cocks and masculinity, uh, which is a, like the double entendre exists in English as well as Balinese, Mm, Um, as well as the culture of cockfighting and what goes into maintaining the sport and its participants, both human and bird. Um, Geertz is also a a pioneer of symbolic anthropology Um, of like they are doing these things as symbols of other aspects of their identity and and society. Um, So, but that really comes through in his conclusion that the cockfight itself is a Balinese commentary on the Balinese. Um, Hmm. And so this is sort of, they are representing themselves and their society like through this Sport, um, and so it it represents the network of social relationships that govern traditional life, huh. um, and so it's 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 really there's a reason why it's a seminal work because it's sort yeah. of like I feel like my my professor I think might have assigned it to be like Hey you can write okay and people like and still like do anthropology I feel like it was like a bit of a dunk but unless there are any further questions. Class is dismissed. Let's take a break. Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today.
1: All right, we are back. And now that our first hand was, I see what you did there, was anthropological Ah. theory with a side of gambling. Let's really jump in. Oh, you missed the
2: chance to say, let's go all in. I don't know anything about gambling. So, I mean, I did watch Uncut Gems, so I know a lot about gambling now. (laughs) But Well,
1: it's something you say in poker. So let's go all in and talk about it. Yeah. All the chips. Not those kinds of chips. (laughs) Calm down. (laughs) Let's talk about a case of gambling featuring not only in the lived experience of people, but also in their mythology. So to do so, let's return (laughs) in a kind of belated way to Chaco Canyon, which we last discussed way, way, way back, nearly 100 episodes ago. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. In episode 16 on Ancestral Puebloans. The following is from American Archaeology Magazine, and Alexandra Wintz writes in When the Gambler Came to Chaco. Quote, Navajo oral histories tell of a great gambler who had a profound effect on Chaco Canyon, the ancestral Puebloan capital located in what is now northwestern New Mexico. His name translated to winner of people, or he who wins men at play, and he traveled to Chaco from the south. Once there, he began gambling with the locals, engaging in games such as dice and foot races. He always won. Faced with such a formidable opponent, the people of Chaco lost all their possessions at first. Then they gambled their spouses and children, and finally themselves into his debt. With a group of slaves now available to do his bidding, the gambler ordered them to construct a series of great houses, the monumental architecture that fills Chaco Canyon today. To archaeologist Rob Weiner, the story of the gambler reveals a previously unappreciated part of Chaco's past. Through his betting skills, the gambler became powerful enough to coordinate the immense amounts of labor and planning needed to build Chaco's architecture. And the archaeological record at Chaco supports the oral histories. For more than a century, researchers there have unearthed hundreds of gaming-related artifacts such as bone dice and wooden sticks. Such games would have played a crucial role in developing and maintaining community relationships at Chaco, said Wiener. People from different family groups might have settled minor arguments with a friendly game of dice. Or neighboring communities could have brought their best goods to wager during a high-stakes sporting game, much as a bookie might take a bet on the Super Bowl today. Are we allowed to say Super Bowl? Superb owl. Uh, And so Wiener says, quote, gambling was taking place in Chaco and it had a lot of social repercussions, end quote. We learn more about those social repercussions from Wiener himself in the journal American Antiquity, in which he gives us a case study with actual material stuff from the ancient Puebloan site of Chaco Canyon. He says, the rituals of gaming and gambling between outlier communities or between outlier communities and groups from Chaco would have given people who may not have spoken the same language a way to interact and make social connections, exchange goods and information, Meet marriage partners and feel a general sense of connectedness as participants in the Chaco Big Idea, which makes it sound like some sort of
2: multi-level marketing. Well, Well, it's not a pyramid scheme because if it were a pyramid scheme, they wouldn't be a part of it. That's what everybody who's like is in an MLM says. It's not a pyramid scheme. If it were a pyramid scheme, I wouldn't do it. Of course not.
1: Furthermore, ceremonial gambling matches related to rainmaking and divination, as known ethnographically among the pueblos, may have been a ritual vehicle through which Chacoan religious ideology was performed, participated in, and reproduced. Perhaps, taking part in ceremonial games at Chaco Canyon, even by losing, and therefore thereby offering one's goods, labor, or personal freedom, was understood as a righteous undertaking in Chaco, as the place of renewal, the home of the ancestors, and the center place around which all in life revolved. Chaco Canyon is the one that has that big kind of central road that just kind of goes off, right? And it's thought to be, mm. there were a lot of kind of outlying communities, so this this is cool. Mm -hmm. Wiener goes on to describe some of the artifacts from Chaco that are most likely to be related to gambling. Again, as he mentions in this article, maybe there's another functional explanation for these objects, but if there is, archaeologists have not pinpointed it. And so these include wooden cylinders, um, deliberately carved and worked, they're not just broken sticks, which are notable because they're very consistent in their dimensions. Bone dice, which are also roughly consistent in size, shape, and markings. Most are ovoid, not sheep-shaped, but (laughs) Uh, oval-shaped. Or kind of like lozenge-shaped, kind of faceted, but sort of roughly describing an oval. Is that a lozenge? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Anyway, they're kind of elongated in shape with hatch marks incised on them. And so when I say dice, they're not dice in the sense that you might think of now, in a, a modern kind of Western context with the, the cube shapes, these are flat mm-hmm. tabs. They're sort of two-dimensional. They don't have multiple faces. Well, they have multiple faces,
2: Two. <laughs> they also have more than two dimensions.
1: <laughs> yes, but <laughs> two-sided is really what I should have said. They're more like uh, when you go to when when you <laughs> when you go to a museum and you get you put you crank the penny through the commemorative penny yeah. cranking machine. That's what they look like, but with hatch marks instead of like Smithsonian. Okay. We've also got type three sticks, which is great. I guess there were types one and two (laughs) does not describe them. These are poles that resemble something like a field hockey stick. If you're familiar with that or just a regular hockey stick, but with a shorter uh, business end, a long handle. And then the far end that comes out a little bit of an angle with a slight scoop carved into it. Uh, And Wiener likens these to something called shinny sticks, which sent me down a minor rabbit hole. But here's the etymology. Shinny, generally believed to be a precursor to ice hockey, was informal enough in his formative years that the pucks and sticks were often makeshift. During the Great Depression in the United States, for example, northern boys, I don't, it says northern boys, I don't know, but I feel like I have to say northern boys, (laughs) used tree branches or broom handles as sticks, a tin can, a piece of wood, and even a frozen road apple, which is horse poo, as a puck. Better be frozen. Any object about the right size might serve as a puck. The name is derived from the Scottish game Shinte. Playing some Shinte. And indeed, Shinny was a common name for one of Shinty's many regional variations in Scotland. Shinny, though, now is a primarily Canadian term and is usually called pickup hockey or pond hockey in the United States. A myth perpetuates in Canada that the name is derived from children tying thick, catalogs from the local chain department store around their legs, especially the goalies as a makeshift type of shin guard that so that's unsubstantiated. Uh, so there's that those cool. objects may be related to a game that was probably played a bit like hockey. The short version of the story is that this was another game that, that formed a part of social life, a Chaco, but games were also tied into the cosmology and mythology of the place and the people. So, which brings us to the Great Gambler. What what are you making that face for? Oh, is Heidi doing stuff? doing stretchies. Oh, hi. Hi, baby. I'm doing story time. You want to hear a story? Which brings us to the Great Gambler, a mythical figure who shows up in Puebloan and Navajo stories. And he sounds like the kind of guy your parents warned you about. So, a little bit of this is is repetitive uh, of what we just said above, kind of describing the Gambler, but this is a kind of synthesis of multiple myths from the various Puebloan groups about the great gambler. So let's hear the whole story. Navajo stories tell how the gambler, again, he who wins men at play, the son of the sun, the one in the sky, came to Chaco Canyon from the south. He lived at Pueblo Alto and wore a characteristic piece of turquoise jewelry. He was a skilled gambler and gambled with the people of Chaco. He also introduced addictive, mind-altering drugs to the people. Some of the games he played included hoop and pole, dice, a golf-like game, so maybe that's those shinny sticks correspond to that, pushing over posts, a game I could handle, and foot races. That one's not for me. The gambler always won and continued to win until the people had gambled away all their possessions. With nothing left to wager, they bet themselves and their family members and eventually became the gambler's slaves. People from the surrounding regions came and gambled with him. They all lost and eventually they too became his slaves. The gambler put the people to work building the great houses that now fill Chaco Canyon. Eventually, he aroused the wrath of the sun his dad, and the deities and the people began to plot the gambler's downfall. The deities created a hero to challenge the gambler. The hero was made to look identical to the gambler, and he recruited the assistance of various animal deities to help him defeat the gambler the deities created a sandstorm to distract the gambler's watchman as the hero arrived in the canyon the hero then challenged the gambler to a series of matches with the assistance of the animal deities the hero defeated the gambler in all the games with the bets culminating in the hero winning all of the gambler's slaves and possessions The people of Chaco decided to banish or kill the gambler, but the sun took pity on him and told him, this is the part that I love the imagery of, and told them to shoot the gambler into the sky using a magical bow. Nice. So they shot him up and he landed in different versions on the moon or in the south where he came from. This is how I feel about my phone a lot of the time and what I want to do to it. As the gambler ascended into the heavens, he either explicitly stated he would return or implied it by speaking in Spanish or white man's words. The people feared what would happen to them now that the hero had attained power, but he assured them he was a different sort of person than the gambler and freed them. The people dispersed from Chaco in the four directions. Eventually, the gambler returned to the southwest as the god of the Spaniards slash Mexicans. So, let's take a moment to let those implications sink in. So it seems from the juxtaposition of the oral history with the archaeological record that gambling and gaming was an integral part of life at Chaco Canyon, but maybe there is an element of, of moralizing, and I don't know if moralizing is the right word, but but a warning in the mythology about the very real prospect of social problems that gambling can create. But it's clear that that gambling existed in that culture. It's not like it was introduced by colonial forces it was there yeah Um,
2: yeah and it was something that was seen as like i guess i guess fun because people did it but also the like there were high stakes yeah there were consequences i guess it's better than stakes (laughs) Um, (laughs) so i mean stakes is the relevant word though I know. I know. And I don't want it to seem like I'm like making a pun. No. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. That's fair. So we've established that gambling isn't an innate human behavior and that large parts of the world have never had gambling as part of their societies. So, one such place is Australia, or so it was thought. So, much of the Australian continent has no tradition of gambling prior to colonization. But, of course, there's no monolithic culture in Australia. So, we can't necessarily say that the Aboriginal Australians of the southeastern coast, um, what's today Victoria and New South Wales, um, would have had the same approach, or lack thereof, to gambling as in northern Australia. So, which while i was doing that have you ever looked at photos of arnhem land in the northern territory of australia i don't know that i have it is gorgeous mm. like the opposite of those pictures that i was looking at before we started recording <laughs> so sorry about that <laughs> So Helen Breen's article, Visitors to Northern Australia, Debating the History of Indigenous Gambling, tackles this and also brings up Per Binda's work that we discussed earlier. So it's coming full circle. So the abstract of her article reads was gambling introduced to indigenous australians by british colonists in 1788 or was it introduced by macassan fishermen much earlier using a variety of literature resources it is argued that indigenous australians gambling sorry that indigenous australian gambling did exist in regions along australia's northern coastlines in pre-colonial times due to the influence of macassan fishermen Using an anthropological model, the adoption of card games and gambling is seen as adaptive response to changes in the lives of indigenous Australians. It is also argued that Bindas' four conditions for predicting the presence of gambling in traditional societies are not reliable indicators for predicting gambling by indigenous Australians in northern Australia in pre-colonial times. So who, who, Mikhasan? The Makassan fishermen. So, Makassan fishermen is the term, mm-hmm. um, and so Makassan fishermen are specifically Fisher people um, <laughs> who were based in the port city of Makassar, which is in which is on Sulawesi, and Sulawesi is an island in Indonesia. Um, and so they traveled, so, so they were involved in, like, maritime, like, trade and exploits uh, from Sulawesi to the coastline of Arnhem Land and the Kimberley, which are both in northern Australia. Um, and so they were, like, they were on that, like, well before European settlement in Australia until the early 20th century. So that was sort of the era of the Macassan fishermen. I'm assuming that's where the term
1: anti-macassar comes from, like a macassar being like a, like a hair oil or something, I think. And an anti-macassar is something that you, like a kind of doily thing that you drape over your seat so you don't get stains on I have it. no
2: idea what you're talking about. Alrighty.
1: Yeah. It's a, a piece of cloth put over the back of a chair to protect it from grease and dirt or as an ornament used to keep macassar oil off of things.
2: Interesting. I assume came from that place. Interesting. All right. Well, Helen Breen goes through through all the stuff. But what I thought was very interesting was that she like shots are fired. Um, And so she says, Binda's first condition for gambling to arise is not met in having and using commercially available domestic money. Yet a mutually advantageous economic exchange system was used for trade and gambling by early indigenous Australians in northern regions a second condition for gambling to exist due to social inequality, vast gaps in class and wealth, is not met in egalitarian indigenous Australian society, yet gambling was present in northern parts of Australia in pre-colonial ages. Binda's third condition for gambling to arise, that of social complexity, is not met through the narrow definition of established large settlements. Given a more comprehensive definition of social complexity, possibly including over 40,000 years of ancient culture and society, this condition could be regarded as being partly met. And then this fourth condition for gambling to arise under certain kinds of competitive inter-tribal relations is partly met, as some small-scale regional fighting and warfare did occur, but it was countered by successful peacekeeping strategies. Even so, gambling was present in some northern Australian indigenous groups before European colonization. So what she argues is that it was probably, it, it did exist before the arrival of Europeans, it was probably introduced by the Macassan fishermen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it caught on and was something that people did, even though their, their society didn't have these like hallmarks, um, which is very interesting and a good reminder that it's like almost impossible to come up with rules that dictate, uh, human every, behavior.
1: yeah, every aspect yeah. of human behavior. Cause guess what? We're complicated. And weird. Yeah. And that's okay. So,
2: um, yeah. So let's mull over that and take another break. Let's do that.
0: Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to artpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our Public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on T-shirts, mugs and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.archpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, TimeMiller is an app and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash That's arcpodnet.com forward slash to get on track today. Hey, Archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of Archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes, so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. We're
1: back. And hey, are you hanging around in the medieval Adriatic? You looking for a good time? Well, I have good news and bad news. The good news, there were definitely games of chance to be had in the Middle Ages in the Adriatic region, and that today is Italy, Croatia, Montenegro, Albania, and Bosnia and Herzegovina, usually just called Bosnia. But you'd need to be very careful about what you played and where. Some games were sanctioned by cities, some were outlawed, and it varied from town to town. So this is from Medievalists.net. In her article, Ludus Zardorum, Moral and Legal Frameworks of Gambling Along the Adriatic in the Middle Ages, Sabina Florence Fabianic examines how gambling was practiced and regulated in said towns. So here we go, a hefty quote. Gambling was strictly forbidden, only in Split, which is a a city in Croatia, except during the Christmas season and Carnival, as was any kind of game of chance. But playing cards, that is, the usual card games, was allowed. In contrast, in Rijeka and its whole district, all games were forbidden in general. Dice, cards, and something called corigolo Corigolo. No idea. But the city acknowledged the need to play for entertainment, so three, the city's just like, oh, fine. (laughs) So three types of games were legal. Ronfa and Trionfa, while Basetta played for profit, was only allowed under the condition that a bet did not exceed four shillings and that no player was allowed to exceed the upper daily limit of bets, which was set at six pounds in total. The fine was five pounds. Some committee came up with this. In Dvigrad, it was apparently also forbidden to play cards and gamble. The innkeepers and their staff were authorized to keep order in their places and in the port on Limbe. Thus, they could fine individuals who played these games. In Dubrovnik, gambling and playing cards per se were not forbidden, but if games of chance included the possibility of giving something in pawn, then the people were fined who lent money to the players. In Skradin, gambling at night was punishable, but there was no special regulation of gambling during the day. Hmm. In Kotor, you you think you want people gambling at night just because, like, that's when they're not working? I don't know. No, like, get up to other stuff. I know, that's what I mean. Like, give them time to work, and then let them do what they want at night. No, but then they'll get up to other stuff. Mm. Bad stuff. Mm. In Kotor, according to the regulation of 1421, it was forbidden to play... In a cave. That's in quotes, and I'm not sure
2: why. Like, what's a cave? Was in a man cave? No, with like sports memorabilia on the walls. (laughs) You
1: don't want to crack
2: open a crispy boy. Crack open a crispy boy and play some cards.
1: Uh, So you can't play in a cave, man or otherwise, and in secret (laughs) places and games in which someone lost while others gained. However, playing games with dice was allowed. Alia... Alia Yakta est, as well as Honest Public Games. I don't know what that means.
2: It's like Connect Four?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, like, what's a. Scrabble. Yeah. Or, you know, like playing chess in in Times Square. Not not Times Square, in Central Park. Oh my God. (laughs) Multiple fatalities today. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, nope, nope. I've lost my mind. Some of the common elements of these and other regulations was to make sure that gambling, if it was allowed, took place in public areas and that the money involved would be relatively modest. There was also a concern that con men might be deceiving people with their games. A statute, which uh, when I first read this, I thought it said a statue and I thought there was like a statue about gambling. I was disappointed when it's not. A statute from the town of Sibenik reveals that there were at least six methods of rigging dice. They could be not entirely cubical uh you could add material they were mildly dented
2: so like material added that like weights them mm-hmm. is that the idea mm-hmm.
1: yeah or... so either material was added i guess on the interior of the dice i'm not sure how you would add it to the exterior and oh, have guess, it, so it not, it like not be obvious
2: you could do like a little glob or something
1: yeah but you'd, you'd be able to see it so i am assuming that mm-hmm. the material added would be on
2: the interior I interi- mean, it's gonna be pretty obvious if it's not entirely cubical. <laughs> Not necessarily. the proportions could just be kind of off i don't know okay because a
1: lot of times these, these things were made of like bone or you know like hand carved it's pretty difficult to you know it's not like these are die cast or something um so they could be mildly dented oh, okay well with obvious things they had the same number on two sides so you check your dice before you play i guess they were filled with lead or mercury or they were rubbed with a magnet <laughs> I guess that yes. only works if you're playing on a
2: metallic surface
1: uh, and it just goes against dunk. the insane
2: clown posse. <laughs> How does it work?
1: Look, I got a reference. Yeah. Good job. I was going to say, against guess you playing against Ian McKellen as Magneto. He'd just probably, he'd probably kill you. <laughs> <laughs> if you accused him of cheating. Uh, so there could be shady dice. Meanwhile, some civic officials saw a benefit in allowing gambling. In the Italian city of Ancona, where gambling was legal, the commune collected taxes on the winnings and collected special rents from the houses where it was played. Fabianic adds that it was possible that Croatian towns also found a way to make money by permitting gambling. And that reminds me. Legalize it. Hashtag legalize it. That reminds me. Uh, Do you know how the idea of the national lottery got started? No. No. Okay, well, if you had to guess a year when the National Lottery started, and
2: I'm talking about in Europe specifically, what would you say? Don't scroll down. Well, I do know that the lottery was first published in 1948. Huh? Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Look, you went all highbrow, and I just want to ask you about this gambling game. I don't know anything about that, but I know about Shirley Jackson. (laughs) This
1: is why we compliment one another. Give me a guess.
2: Don't, Um, Don't scroll
1: time immemorial no uh there there were several different answers
2: that i'd accept uh actually time <laughs> immemorial probably would have worked i don't know but um that voice that voice you made no. that sounds like olivia <laughs> coleman's the queen the, the current queen Yes, Hello. is it, uh, is it that is it current queen no
1: same place older queen uh-huh. So, from a Smithsonian, there's a, there's a few answers here. So, the idea of using a state lottery this is interesting. Shush, I know, just- <laughs> that's fine. I, my inability to sit still earlier is coming back to bite me in the butt. <laughs> the idea of using a state lottery to raise money for infrastructure and other government projects is an old one. <laughs> While one of the first <laughs> recorded lotteries was held in 1446 by the widow of Flemish painter Jan van Eyck, my mom likes his work. I think. The state's also dark. It's very dark it, it, and, like
2: all all of his paintings and, look like they smell. Well, because there was only candlelight and that's how the paintings are lit. Like, it looks the like Dutch it. Dutch mass it just it just looks like I've never wanted to go to the Netherlands because it
1: No, no, no. Looks, we should go looks to the like Netherlands. It looks like it smells.
2: They're beautiful.
1: I, and I it's also that not it 1446
2: anymore <laughs> there. <laughs>
1: that's the big thing. <laughs> They've moved past that. I think there's electricity they've got, now. They've got dehumidifiers now. <laughs> <clears throat> so Jan van Eyck, he did. And his widow recorded a lottery that was held in 1446. But the state lottery dates back to ancient civilizations like the Roman Empire and China's Han Dynasty, which used money raised by a type of lottery called kino, kino. Still around today to fund it's the building. Around. Yeah, to fund the building of the Great Wall, according to the North American Association of State and Provincial Lotteries. But the one that I was referring to when I asked you about the date was Elizabeth one, Lizzie I, Lizzie the first, about whom don't you, we ha- uh, you don't care we currently have an Elizabeth? All. She's the second one. Took that long. Yeah, because they were all kings for a while. See, I don't... It's just... There hasn't been a King Elizabeth in a very
2: long time. Hey, it's it's 2020. I know. Hey. Relevant. <laughs> okay, tell me more about British people. Try to care. Uh,
1: <laughs> during... It's the royals that I don't care about. I well, these think... are very dead and slightly interesting. So during the okay. Elizabethan age, the idea of using lottery money instead of taxes to fund government projects took hold in Europe once again. So a little more than a century after the Van Eyck lottery, Queen Elizabeth I, again, different from the one there is now. See the one with the... Yeah, she had the dog collar. The the cone of shame collar. (laughs) Yeah, they loved the ruffs. Elizabeth I was looking for a way to raise money for several large public projects, in particular, the rebuilding of ports and building new ships for the Royal Fleet, which... You, I don't know if you know or care, but at this time, the, this is when Queen Elizabeth built the British Navy into this huge force and defeated the Spanish Armada. Spain, Spain, yeah, kind Spain. of a thing. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, so at the time, in 1567, when she was doing this, trying to do this massive project of building this giant fleet of ships, she had two choices. Levy a new and potentially onerous tax on her citizens or hold a lottery. The Queen decided to go with the latter and established England's first state lottery. So this lottery, yeah, so it was different in a lot of ways from the modern ones found in the US and England, partly because of the cost of a ticket. While many lotteries these days are heavily marketed towards people with low income salaries, the Queen's lottery targeted the upper class. Indeed, the majority of English citizens in the mid 16th century wouldn't have been able to afford the 10 shillings price per ticket, according to the British Library. Not only did it cost a lot of money, but the pool was limited to 400,000 tickets. So the lucky winner would receive 5,000 pounds in cash, which I didn't convert that, but that's a lot in like now money. But also goods like plate as in like dishes and things Uh, like silver, silver, really nice silver dishes and serving platters and things that were sort of more ornamental and about liquid assets. It's d- displayable okay. physical things. Yeah. Uh along with tapestries and quote, good linen cloth, which was
2: so, very expensive at the time. So it was like um it was like a raffle. It's like a sweepstakes kinda. Yeah. yeah. We have this back home. It's called like the gunbash. But you
1: get other things. Well, to sweeten the gunbash esque deal even further,
2: it's Queen ATV.
1: I mean kind of the Elizabethan equivalent you can just sort of roam around wherever you want because Queen Elizabeth announced that all participants would be granted immunity from arrest as long as the crime wasn't piracy murder felonies or treason
2: that's reported from the so British it's like Library. white collar crime white yeah, yeah. rough crime
1: but they're all white collars, I think
2: you hear my joke white rough crime yeah yeah I liked it, it was great thanks
1: So Queen Elizabeth started the first state lottery and while the winner's name has been lost to the history books, the Queen's raffle helped set the stage for the modern day
2: lottery system. Maybe nobody won and it was just like a fire festival situation. Also lost to history books. I'm going with that one.
1: Do you know what else was really, really popular in Elizabethan times and like Shakespearean times? Uh, Putting poison on your face? Yeah. Yep. But uh, I was going to say prunes, stewed prunes. Was like, that's how you showed that you were like a big spender, was like a, a, a lady would come up to you and be like, buy me a stewed prune. Everyone in Elizabethan times was dying from face poison, but super regular. So there's that. History smelled bad. We're going to have to just uh, deal with that. Yeah.
2: So I've got one last story to share, um, and this time it's from Barbados. Uh, this story focuses on enslaved Africans who brought with them traditions from their homes in Western Africa. So this is explored in depth in a master's thesis by Katrina and Cristiano uh, entitled Gaming Among Enslaved Africans in the Caribbean, whose abstract is as follows. Gaming pieces are a common find at archaeological sites associated with enslaved Africans in the Americas. Two of the most visible types of these pieces are clay marbles and small ceramic pieces that are usually disc or rhomboid shaped. Marbles is a well-recorded game that is still played in the modern day. The ceramic pieces, however, were probably used in a lesser known game once popular with the Igbo of West Africa called Igba Ida. An African game that has worldwide popularity, Mancala, was likely also played by enslaved Africans in the Americas, though the game leaves few archaeological markers these games functioned as both a medium for leisure time activities and a means of negotiating the social world for the enslaved by choosing to play a certain game in a certain way. Enslaved Africans were expressing themselves as individuals when they won or lost a game, they could affect their social standing within their community. Ethnographic accounts from Africa contain much evidence showing the, um, the affects games like Mancala could have on, sorry, the effects games like Mancala can have on a person's status. When Europeans enslaved Africans and brought them to the new world, they took away much of the Africans control over their environment. Nevertheless, by becoming skilled in Mancala or Igbaida, an enslaved African could gain power among his peers. In addition, by choosing to play these games from their, from their or their ancestors' homelands, the enslaved Africans reaffirmed their African identity. So this thesis explores these ideas with a case study of four archaeological sites in Barbados. This former British colony was once the home of a large population of enslaved Africans. Here, as elsewhere, the enslaved made and used gaming pieces to escape the rigorous labor demands of their enslavers and create their own place in the society of their peers. The remains of these activities left in the archaeological record can help modern researchers to better understand the world of the enslaved. And so um, I'll have a link to her thesis in the show notes, Um, but it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I think that this, I wanted to, and cause I was kind of looking at Perbenda's map of like where gambling occurred. And I was like, well, I want to feature something in sort of Western Africa. Sorry, what what map were you looking at? In uh, Perbenda's article, there is a map. There's like a global map, okay, and um and so I was like, oh, I should do that, and then I I was like, I bet <laughs> this is something that that would have come to the Americas, and so I I, lo- I specifically looked for uh, some research that had been done on enslaved Africans and their descendant communities, and so I think I but I think that what she does here brings up a really interesting point that isn't really spoken to like explicitly at least like throughout what else we've talked about of um gambling as a way to negotiate like so how she talked about them negotiating social standing or expressing agency and that this is something that can can afford you a little bit of power a little bit of prestige there's a chance that you can sort of move up even if you're in an environment where like the like earnings aren't right are mm-hmm. inconsequential yeah. and and then um so this along with the idea around uh gambling taking root in like heavily stratified uh, societies with a lot of inequality mm-hmm. um there's it makes a lot of sense why gambling is, is popular in vulnerable communities and, and how people, um, it's, it's quite simple for people who, who lead like comfortable, stable existences to look down on people who gamble or who perhaps, um, have uh, maybe considered as like compulsive gamblers or people who have, um, lost a lot to gambling like it's something that it makes sense like why someone would do that yeah if you examine Um, the the history of
1: of the social contexts
2: yeah yeah and and so this is something that I think is like for these um, communities of enslaved people they have such little control over any part of their lives this is a way to like maintain a part of their identity a way to like have fun yeah, and, like and a like tiny of, bit of
1: escape, or just sort of yeah, uh, a way of of yeah, of
2: playing with with friends, or yeah, and and sort of having exercising that that agency, and sort of getting um, having society of one's own and yeah. navigating that, and so yeah, I thought that um, I thought that that was those really interesting and something that we Definitely. haven't talked about in this episode, but is is something that is. Uh, very much part of the reality of gambling, um, and so it's it's interesting to hear about cases where like it's just like fun, um, mm-hmm. in cases, but like in say with um, the story of the gambler in Chaco Canyon, like it's like catastrophic results, yeah. Um, in the myth, like and and sort of like even though people like in reality and like sort of they're they're present in like the Puebloan present, they were gambling uh, but in their sort of mythic past there was something that like a real, a real went, went south kerfuffle. as it yeah. were oh um, hey, well, literally oh very good <laughs> um yeah so I I wanted to uh so thinking about like what we've what we've discussed as kind of how you can demonstrate that gambling happened how you can, can or possibly can't really, depending on who you talk to, kind of predict like how likely it is that gambling takes place in a traditional society. I wanted to ask you um, about like, is this something that could, you could see being something that would happen, like, in the deep past? Like, is that's like, like Did would Neanderthal, gamble? yeah, like, would Neanderthal communities, like, qualify for any of this? Like, do, what do you, what do you think? Well, okay, so
1: if we take, uh, who was it that challenged the Parabinda rules? Uh, um, Helen, Helen Breen. Breen. So if we, if we take a cue from Helen Breen and realize that there's not a single kind of net that we can cast over societies and go, ah, yes, they fit the qualifications. They, we can predict gambling. Probably can't do that. And also there's no evidence to my knowledge that Neanderthals had a particularly stratified society. So if you take that away, you know, they're, (gasps)
2: um, can you imagine like Neanderthal, like landlords, (laughs) bosses, cave lords, man. But I'm sure
1: that early humans like neanderthals played played games because most species yeah. have some form of play among the young and even even adults can sometimes yeah. be playful i really don't think there's a way to know for sure um mostly because we have such such a in an incomplete picture of what the average neanderthal group or the average kind of once we get into paleolithic time yeah. so like 20 thousand years ago, backward, let's say for the purposes of this, there's really no indication that groups were anything other than family groups or kind of small kind of combined groups of people that may have had some kind of hierarchy. Like there may have been kind of dominant people, but it certainly wasn't socially stratified because they were too busy Live in that hunter-gatherer lifestyle to really have kind of a sense well, yeah. of and
2: and like hunter-gatherer groups are usually like more egalitarian, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I guess like also like how do you find like, like okay so evidence of thing. like tournaments and things so right like even exactly if you're like
1: and what would the physical remains look like because yeah. so I mean if you're just hanging out ask any archaeologist who's ever been bored on site like you throw a pebble at a bucket or like you throw like a you trowel can, don't throw that trowel <laughs> <laughs> see if it trials. sticks in the ground no i know uh, that game hey hey melanie and bowie Ah, <laughs> <laughs> um but the, i can't think off the top of like what would the you can use anything around you and then brush away any shapes in the dirt and it's gone. Like it's entirely ephemeral. So I can't think off the top of my head about any pieces of evidence that are supposed to be, that have been interpreted as game pieces. There's plenty of instances where there's incised bone or eggshell or ochre with markings scratched on it. But more often than not, that's interpreted as something ritual or something question mark. Uh, People have zillions of theories about it, but I really can't think of anything that again, listeners, if you know something that I don't or if you've if you've heard about something, write in and let us know. But I really can't think of anything in that deep chronology. Okay. But
2: this is this is something that um, the sorts of things that we've talked about where uh, having evidence for like complex or symbolic thought would would come into play. That sort of like there's no have reason, reason to, to think believe they had the capacity. Yeah, to. exactly. We just don't have like material yeah, like evidence material of Material culture, like physical evidence of it.
1: Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That's kind of an unsatisfying answer. I'm sorry. But really yeah. the, the, the the best I can do is there's no reason to think they wouldn't have been able to, did they? Or? But also
2: maybe they didn't want to. Yeah. Maybe does, you didn't come up with it. I mean just truly, because you didn't don't come up with it doesn't mean you weren't capable of coming up with it. I can Which very, is something that I like tell myself like every time I someone comes up with a good idea. I could have, I I didn't have, but I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like to think sometimes
1: about what it looked like when a Neanderthal was bored. Maybe they didn't have a lot of idle time. So that's where we will leave you today. Players, (laughs) we'll be back in your ears next week. But if you can't wait, guess what? You can spend literal days of your life listening to our back catalog on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else fine podcasts are sold for free.
2: Yeah. And while you're there, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have not done so already. Um, And you might hear it at the top of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. We're on Twitter um, at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're um, The Dirt Pod. Yeah. And if you want to see that all smushed together in one place,
1: plus merch and the button lets you sponsor an episode on a topic of your choice and much more you can do that at thedirtpod.com. And just one more time, thank you everyone who has reached out to us and and talked to us on any of the social media platforms. We really, really love hearing you and, and engaging with you and talking about this stuff because we, we do this podcast because we love this stuff. And we love yeah. that you love it too. So come geek out with us wherever you like on any of those yeah. social media platforms or at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks everybody. Thank you. We love you.
0: Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.